Welcome to Transit Matters, special coverage of the Budget for All Forum this past Saturday, uh, October 24th in downtown Boston. Transit Matters is an organization that advocates for fast, frequent, and reliable and comprehensive transportation service, particularly public transportation, the MBTA in Boston. Um, We have a vision to repair, improve, and expand the transit network in the city, in the region, and uh, encourage you to find out more at transitmatters.info. I am Jeremy Mendelson. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Transit Matters podcast, where you will find this show, as as well as the advocacy director and one of the co-founders of Transit Matters. And uh, happy to be bringing you this content. I was a panelist on the first panel out of the three, and I will be uh, splitting them up into different parts because they're a little long. And uh, my talk is going to be in, in this particular uh, clip here. Um, just, a, just a quick note. Um, first, in the beginning, you will hear uh, Kalita Smalls, who is one of the organizers of uh, SEIU 32BJ, an organization that organizes a number of um, transportation, like kind of on the ground workers, um, including the janitors who work uh, for the contractor hired by the T. Then you will hear Paul Shannon, who is one of the organizers of this panel and Budget for All, um, which is advocating for uh, progressive reorganization of spending on a state and federal level and uh, to things such as infrastructure and uh, education, healthcare, etc. And uh, he's also in the American Friends Service Committee, and he is uh, moderating this panel so much as we need a moderator. At about 13 minutes in is the talk by Josh Ostroff, who is the Partnerships Director for Transportation for Massachusetts. This is a coalition representing transportation groups and those interested in transportation, working for more transportation funding in the Commonwealth, and they work through a variety of means. Transit Matters is a member of this coalition, which has about about 60 members, I believe. Uh, And then in about 22 and a half minutes, you'll hear my talk uh, for Transit Matters, talking about our vision to uh, repair, improve, and expand public transit in uh, in the Boston area. I just want to make one small correction before I continue. Um, I am on the Livable Streets Advocacy Committee, not the advisory board, Um, but I'm uh, Transit Matters is most of my work. And uh, so please send comments and questions and feedback, suggestions to jeremy at transitmatters.info and uh, we'll pass them along if appropriate. Please share this around and get involved with one of these organizations if you care about public transit and the environment and other things. And if you see this in time, please come to uh, Transit Matters Beer in Transit this Wednesday featuring former Governor Michael Dukakis. More info at transitmatters.info. Welcome to SEIU 32BJ. Um, uh, we're happy to be uh, allowing you guys into the space and having this really, really important conversation because it's so connected to our work and other labor work that we're, we're doing as well. Um, so I just wanted to say a little bit about who we are, some of the stuff that we're doing right now, and then speak to some of the transit uh, labor organizing that we're in the middle of because we actually represent the 300 people uh, that clean the MBTA system. So all of the janitors and the folks cleaning up in the stations, in the MBTA offices even, uh, are our members. So 32BJ is actually a property services union, so we represent folks who are in uh, 
the buildings, right? Basically the core of what makes buildings operate. And for the most part, that is janitors, right? So maintenance folks, groundsmen, and security officers. We have about 15,000 janitors in our base here in the district and about 3,000 security officers. Security is a new area of organizing for us and we're still building there. And then we're also organizing <coughs> folks at the airport. Um, Logan Airport has about 10,000 workers that come in and out of it in some way, shape, or form. We're focused on the passenger service workers there. So those are the folks who deal with your bags, who check you in, that sort of thing. Um, they're making minimum wage or less than that. We've been able to fight for some improvements at the airport, but at the end of the day, we want the 1,500 passenger service workers that are there to have a union, to be part of uh, SCIU 32BJ. Those are some of the areas of workers that we represent, who we are. Our district is about 20,000 people, but we're part of the 32BJ, it covers the coast from Maine to Florida. And so overall, we represent about 150,000 workers from Maine to Florida. Um, a lot of offices, a lot of districts in different places. Um, so again, uh, we represent the folks that clean the MBTA system for the past couple of years, so they're contracted out. Uh, I know there's a big fight right now with MBTA workers, bus drivers, and other folks in uh, Carmen's Union 589, and we are very supportive of that fight because they do not want the state to continue to privatize jobs at the MBTA. The janitors were the first folks to get pushed out and contracted, privatized many, many years ago. And so since then, every three or four years, we fight with the MBTA to make sure that they stay uh, workers there that they don't try to cut that base down in any way and of course that they get more resources more benefits and so just last year we were in a huge fight you might see some of these big signs around here uh, will speak to it because they were trying to cut a third of that workforce so a hundred workers would have lost their jobs and we went on a massive campaign to the point where we were dressing up like rats and handing out leaflets and tea stations and on buses to get them to stop doing that and we were successful but that contract is up again this year and so the fight is always something Thing that continues definitely so again really happy that you guys are here having this conversation about public transit and how important that is and I'm personally a member of the T Riders Union and my fellow Riders Union back there Louise uh, and she can say more about that work too it's also connected and very important thank you very much thank you Kalida okay so we're here to have a conversation. We want to thank uh, all of you on behalf of Budget for All uh, for giving up your Saturday morning uh, to have this conversation. And uh, we want to especially thank our panelists, not just for their time, but for all the work they've put in over the years to uh, try to keep the MBTA accessible for all of us. Uh, if we didn't realize it before, this past winter drove home to us the reality of just how important mass transit is to us here in eastern Massachusetts. Uh, in addition, of course, and of growing concern and importance, public transit is a critical component of any serious plan if we're talking about dealing with climate change. Absolutely essential. Public transit is also a public good and therefore deserves to be defended and funded. So that's why we're here today. The Budget for All campaign uh, was launched back in 2012. Uh, Budget for All is the sponsor of this conversation uh, today. And uh, 
it was launched with a non-binding public policy question that was put on the ballot uh, in many towns and cities, 90 altogether across the state, Western Mass, North Shore, Boston area, South Shore. Uh, the ballot question consisted of four parts. The first was to prevent budget cuts to vital programs like Social Security and housing assistance. The second part was to create and protect jobs in education, public services and transportation, and renewable energy. The third component was to end these, uh, these massive ta uh, tax breaks for the largest corporations and for extremely high incomes that, that the federal government has uh, put in place over the past 20 years, uh, cutting uh, revenues. And finally, to redirect Pentagon spending to programs we all depend on, such as transportation. That isn't the exact language, but th those are the main points of what was on the ballot. To our surprise, this initiative won by a measure of three to one across the state, uh, including uh, the towns and cities that voted for Romney for president, that was a presidential election, and all the towns and cities where it was on the ballot, about 22 of them that voted for Brown over Warren. In those towns and cities, the margin of victory was the same as anywhere else. Dover, Wellesley, all these places, uh, Mansfield, uh, Raynham, places like that. So we found that when you ask the public what their actual attitudes are, as opposed to what the television and the CNN and all tell us our attitudes are, uh, they turn out to be quite different. And we feel that's a basis for mobilizing, and we feel it's especially a basis for bringing people who have a lot of disagreements on a lot of issues, uh, but who agree on some things together under an umbrella that focuses on the federal budget. And we are going to have one heck of a battle on the federal budget come December. Uh, given the lay of the land in Congress, in the White House, uh, the, the budgets uh, being offered right now would slash just about everything right across the board, uh, including going after Social Security. And so this is going to be hitting everybody. No one's focused on it right now, uh, but it will be hitting us soon. It will affect public, public transport as well. So uh, for those interested, this Wednesday, uh, a bill that was filed uh, at, in the state legislature based on that uh, referendum that was on the ballot back in 2012 will have a hearing uh, before the uh, Joint Committee on Federal Veterans and Federal Affairs. All of you, of course, are invited. We're gonna have a rally at 12.30. The hearing starts at 1.30. There's also another very important hearing that day on a bill to uh, deal with the issue of public, of uh, the financing, the, uh, uh, what is the Supreme Court decision? Citizens. Citizens United, to try to undo the terrible damage that that has done. Uh, this is focused on the state level. So that bill will be heard too. I hope you'll all join us. If any of you working on public transport would be interested in testifying, we really want to use that hearing to raise the issue of public funding for, tra for, trans tran uh, for uh, mass transit as well. The budget for all agenda is based on the people's budget filed annually by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. One thing we hope to come out of today is to 
for those who can stay toward the end to put together a plank that we will lobby the Congressional Progressive Congress with to make their uh, positions on mass transit better than they are. They, they are very supportive of mass transit, but it's, it's not the type of strong plank that we really would like, and we'd like to try to develop that because we now have a campaign going working with the Congressional Progressive Con Congress called the People's Budget Campaign, which will be a national campaign to really push that budget uh, when it's offered again come March. So, and the other thing we hope to do today is uh, get people to sign a letter asking for a meeting with Congressman Capuano, who is an on, on an important transportation committee uh, in, the, uh, in the Congress. So, let us begin with our first panel. And let us begin by examining the state of public transit in Massachusetts. What is the lay of the land out there? And uh, to go into this, uh, one of our panelists hasn't arrived yet, so we're going to begin anyway. Uh, I want to uh, introduce both of our panelists that are here and then turn it over to them. Uh, Joshua Ostroff, uh, to the end of the table, is a Natick Selectman, um, who has many Natick Selectman jobs to do today and is good enough to spend <laughs> some hours with us this morning. And he serves as the Partnerships Director of Transportation for Massachusetts. Transportation for Massachusetts is a longtime advocacy organization focused on transportation, obviously. And Joshua is a past president of the Massachusetts Municipal Association as well. Uh, next to me is Jeremy Mendelson, is a regular commentator on public transit issues through his project, uh, Transit Matters. Uh, and he's also on the advisory board of Livable Streets. So, uh, Joshua, if you would uh, take it from here, we appreciate you being here and waiting to hear what you have to say. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you uh, all for being here and, and to uh, Kalita and SEIU for making this space available for this great discussion. Uh, so, I'm, uh, you know, Transportation for Massachusetts also is uh, your coalition. We have 58 members all across the state, many in the Boston area, but several out in Western Central Mass, Merrimack Valley, South Coast, and unified by concern that people need mobility to get around to lead their lives in order to have healthy and resilient communities. And our goals are to achieve uh, climate resilience, to provide social opportunity and mobility for all, to improve public health, and transportation is really key to all of those things. So I want to make sure folks have a little information about us and you can sign up to get email and participate in, in various events and causes that we that we advocate. Joshua, why don't you give me those and I'll just make oh, sure. Oh, sure. I think folks Does everyone not have one of these? Does everyone have one in their uh, packet? No? It's not in the packet. It was on the table. Okay. So, so there's some more over here. So, so in particular, I just want to acknowledge a few of our members that are here today. Jeremy with uh, Transit Matters is is uh, one of our coalition members, and Mass Perg and 350 Mass will be speaking later. Uh, Jack Spence is a great advocate um, for that, and many of you may have been you know part of the work that we've done over the years. Um, so you know, I think that the state of transportation and transit in Eastern Mass is obviously troubled but at least it's on the front burner. At least it's something that people really care about. Not just if you, you know, ride the bus every day or endure the trains or commuter rail as I do, um, or ferries or aeronautics or all the other things that are part of the uh, mass DOT umbrella, but, uh, but because it's critical to the health of our and well-being of our communities 
and to the regional economy. And we saw what happened when the T shut down. It cost you know businesses their very existence, and it cost a lot of people their livelihood. And I personally am very fortunate. I can work from home if I need to. I not I don't have a job you know busting tables or cleaning hotel rooms. You know, so so it's not critical that I get to my office, although my coworkers like it. Um, but we know for people, particularly for people lower income with less opportunity, it is absolutely vital, and it's just so important that we make sure that we provide a dependable and affordable means to get around. So, so I think the state of it is first, we've got people's attention. That's great. Second, there is a real commitment now, at, at the very top of state government to really diagnosing and fixing the things that have plagued the system for years. And I think it's very important for us to try to get a 360 degree view of the issues and understand that like any organization, probably more than many, more than all perhaps, the MBTA has not been well managed in, in, in many respects. And that's not to indict the people that work there. It's really, I think, a combination of neglect that the system has had over the years from revenue. It's been a bit of a you know patronage uh, haven for, for folks. It has never had the kind of close examination that any organization needs to to meet the challenges it faces. And what could be more difficult than running a transit authority? I mean, that's why there's so, you know, problems are so many. So there's a new focus on making sure that performance is what it needs to be for the benefit of the people that depend on it and that there's accountability so that there are you know measurements that in place to say here's what we need for on-time percentage and here's what we need for you know all the other uh, measures that go into it so that's critical and it's wonderful to have a secretary of transportation who has been a longtime advocate for many of the values that I think all the folks in this room care about, making sure that transportation works for everybody and does so affordably. But there's a lot of concerns that we have. To what extent is the false debate between reform and revenue or between maintenance and expansion going to distract people from making the kinds of investments that I think are the central reason we're here today? To support, I mean, no amount of reform is going to make sure that we have all the new buses and trains and staff and new capital investments that we need. We're going to need new revenue, and the question is how to get to that point. So I want to just spend my last couple of minutes talking about what's required to move us forward. First, it's going to be really altering the public narrative and getting away from finger pointing at, you know, bus drivers who take time off to, you know, to care for someone who's sick and thinking about do we have the right staffing and routes? What kind of system do we really need to, uh, to operate well? But also just talking about how critical investment is in transit for the well-being of the economy. And to change that narrative, we're going to need many, many voices, not just you know progressives. You're going to need people who don't identify as progressives. You're going to need mayors from outside the Boston area and selectmen like myself well, I'm there, but most of my colleagues are not. Um, the narrative is still the idea of bailing out the tea. Uh, you're going to need business leaders, large and small alike. You're going to need, you know, staffers and legislators and administrators, you know, within the Baker administration to, to get on board. So that changing the narrative is really very important and it's something that our coalition is, is hard at work on. 
Um, and part of doing that, I think, is good factual reports. So just a tip of the cap to Kirsty Petchy, who will be here later. She and other members of our coalition produce these reports that take a clear look at where we are at with transportation investments mandated in 2013 and in subsequent you know, legislation. How are we doing with all the different reforms and revenue sources that were identified? Um, so the, uh, you know, that switches you know, to reform. You know, reform is sort of a catch-all, and some it means different things to different people. In my final minute, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll say that you know, phrasing revenue has to get away from the idea of taxes and what we pay to investments and what we get, and and what those benefits really are. So we can't rely on people buying into the argument that it only costs another nickel or ten cents or whatever on the gas tax because. I'll gladly pay that because I know what I get for it. But if you think of why Donald Trump is so popular, and I'm sorry to mention his name, it's because we saw in the recent report, he's speaking a language that resonates at a fourth grade level. That's very depressing, but it's true, is that we're gonna have to kind of dumb it down and make sure people understand what, what the benefits are. So, and the last thing that we're trying to work on is the whole idea of what transformation and transportation really means. When we talk about like the sharing economy and Zipcar and new parking technologies and, and how to get the most out of what we've got, we all need to be at the forefront of that conversation and make sure that a service like Bridge and, you know, and, and how taxi services will evolve in the years to come, those are really important complements to a transit system because if you talk to the folks in uh, you know, transit, they're always talking about the last mile problem. Let's make that personal. How does a woman get to take care of an aging parent from you know, uh, Eagleston or some other station uh, you know, where she gets off her bus or her train? So thinking systematically on how it all works together, it's going to be a blend of private and public delivered services, but it all needs to have that, be under that umbrella of accountability. Um, being elected and getting paid $50 a year, I uh, could talk for much longer than we have, but I really want to hear what Jeremy has to say and then engage in dialogue with the folks here. And again, thank you for all putting this together and, uh, and do sign up. Thank you. Jeremy. Uh, thank you, Paul. And thank you everyone who uh, put this together and uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm really happy that this issue is, is starting to get some attention. Um, I've often felt over the years that uh, transportation was something that people just dealt with. They just got used to the system working with the way it is. And I think people are really starting to understand uh, the importance of good mass transit. And I, I don't think I need to uh, convince anybody in, in this room that public transit is really important for reasons of social, environmental, and economic justice and sort of leveling the playing field so that everybody is able to access the places that they need to go and that they have mobility to, to move around their city. Um, we, we, um, yeah, transit is very important for issues of environment, um, of health. There's always new information coming out. I just heard a study uh, published recently showing that there's a link between traffic noise and neurological development mm -hmm. in young children. So this stuff is always coming out and it's always making the case uh, so much more uh, important. Um, supporting uh, vibrant, dense cities. I mean, everybody knows that Boston would not be what it is today without transit. Uh, a lot of people don't know that a lot of the development in Boston uh, would be considered illegal under today's zoning codes um, because you have to provide a certain number of parking and land use.
So, you know, as I was saying, transit is important for uh, reasons of, of uh, land use, making efficient land use in cities, places where we want to be. And as we saw in the winter, transit is the lifeblood of the economy and supports uh, everybody, you know, even, I always make the case to people who don't use transit, say, why should I pay for the T? Say, well, even if you never use the T, you rely on all the people that do, whether that be your friends and family or the people that work at the restaurants and the stores and provide the city services that you depend on, that the majority of those people are using transit. And we, so we here in, in Boston are fortunate to have a comprehensive transit network, but it, the, the network really doesn't work well anymore. Um, it is mostly descendant of uh, streetcars, and we really have not invested in the system over the years, so that chronic underinvestment causes these, uh, the system to be unreliable, uh, to have all kinds, of, all kinds of problems that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis, from rail reliability to uh, bus bunching and, and all the rest. And the daily crises, and combined with the budget cuts over the years, have led to uh, a system and a culture where there is really no vision for improving the system because the T staff and, and others are so focused on daily, you know, putting out fires every day that they are, they're not able to, uh, there is no real vision for what we want transit to be, how we're gonna, how we're gonna modify the network to serve people, what are the issues. And I, I break down the three main issues facing transit in Boston into these three categories. One being this underinvestment, uh, the second being the fact that because we have not invested in the system, we have, our population has grown significantly, 10% since, since 2004. Um, employment is soaring. Um, and because we have not invested in the transit system, the transit is severely overcrowded. Uh, many of the bus lines uh, you cannot get on. Um, and in the rail lines, it takes two and a half minutes to board a red line train at downtown crossing. And, you know, the train's supposed to be running every four and a half minutes. It just physically doesn't work. Uh, and as a result of this, traffic congestion is getting worse because people are not able to choose transit, so they're driving. Our regional transit is, is really poor, it's never really been addressed. Uh, we have trains running every two and a half hours, reliability issues, so we have all these cars driving into the city, creating all this congestion, and as a result, bus travel times are increasing. And despite this increase in population and employment, we have not invested in the transit system to keep up. Um, there has barely been any investment at all, actually. The service hours have actually declined on the bus side. And lastly, we have a very inefficient network. The, as I said, the transit system is largely descended from the original streetcars of 100 years ago. And with the exception of a few minor tweaks when the Orange Line was relocated, uh, terrible planning decision, by the way, um, when that happened, we adjusted a few of the bus routes, but we really have the same system that we've always had. Uh, there have been a few investments over the years, a few new initiatives, some of the crosstown services, uh, routes like the 111, uh, like, like Route 9, have been immensely popular when these things have, have been done. Uh, but we really haven't because we've just been sort of doing the same thing we've always done because we've never, you know, made any investment or had any vision. And so as a result, most of the services are slow, they're indirect, they're infrequent, they're unreliable, they're uncomfortable. I mentioned we can't even get on the bus. Um, the T right now with their standards because of the way their, their budget situation is, they consider if there's, if there's 50 people on a bus, they consider that not a need for change. Because that's, so there's 39 seats on a bus. 
50 people means that there's 11 people standing. It means it's very hard to get to the door. You know, there's, there's a line of people waiting to pay the fares, obviously, then you lead to bus bunching, long gaps. The T doesn't have a plan to deal with any of this because they're, they've never been able to really think of that, to, to move there. Um, and this also, um, I wanna to touch a little bit on, on the regional transit authorities. I focus a lot on my work at the MBTA, um, but a lot of these issues are relevant to the regional transit authorities. And it's increasingly relevant as people are getting pushed out of the city because of increasing housing prices. Because another thing, as the population has gone up and the employment has gone up, uh, we have not made significant investments in housing. Um, so what that's doing is we're getting a lot of a lot of people having to move farther and farther out. And I've, I've said, you know, where are these people going? Well, people are going to Brockton, they're going to Lawrence, they're going to uh, Haverhill. They're going to places that are pretty far out, but they're still having to come back because they have jobs here, they have their uh, their health health centers here, and so uh, the the RTA services are, are increasingly important. Uh, you know, routes like the Bat Bus is the number twelve going down to, to Brockton. Uh, we have there's a connection up to Lowell, but it's very it's very long and, and difficult. And you have to make a transfer that's not coordinated in uh, Burlington. So, uh, and of course, the commuter rail the fares can be unaffordable for for many. So, uh, you know, with the RTAs, they suffer from a lot of these network design issues. But there's also frequency. The fact that um, we have these issues in Boston, and we often like to say frequency is freedom. Well, the service is very infrequent in a lot of these RTAs. I lived in Worcester for a long time. Services every hour, most places. You have to make a connection downtown that's not coordinated. And, uh, you know, there's almost nothing on evenings and weekends. And land use choices are often very poor, and transit doesn't really serve that. So it, in, in the end, it all really all comes back to funding. Um, we, all the things that we need to do, um, the frequency, the span, uh, improving the network, all this stuff requires additional funding. And cities are growing, infrastructure costs money, and, uh, and we have to make that case that this is, this is important and that public transit is important and we need to invest in it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so hopefully we can zero in on some specific uh, issues here related to what the presenters have, uh, have given us. Anyone, would anyone like to make a comment or ask a question at this stage? I assume it's bad transit why the other panel member isn't here, so that's sort of apropos to yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're stuck on the red lines. I, I like to say, you know, it, it, in my experience, every time I go to a transit event, there's always at least somebody who shows up late because of the train, and I think that speaks volumes. <laughs> I, I'd like to, well. Go ahead. Well, the, sort of the concept of time to leave, you have to make a 9 a.m. start of a meeting or to get to work, and you need to be there 99 out of 100 times or your job is at risk. What time do you have to leave? And because of all the kind of the, the problems with scheduling, that is surprisingly long because you can't depend on it. And that's yeah. a big issue. Um, I was wondering about, I, I don't think you've touched on the issue of privatization, um, which to me, I had a really stupid and frustrating experience on commuter rail. Uh, and I kept saying to other people who were waiting for a train that didn't come, don't blame the T because this is farmed out to a private company, right? So, you know, I, I wanted, um, I'd like your um, comment on whether privatization is a good thing. Well, I mean, privatization in and of itself has, has never solved anything. Um, Privatization can be good. I put it this way, right? Let's say let's say you run a you run a little town and you've decided to start a transit service to help people get around. And you have 
maybe you have you know 10 staff managing that you have no idea how to run a transit service so you go out and you can't you issue an RFP and you contract with somebody who knows how to run a transit service to come in and run a transit service well we've been doing this for a hundred years you know for better or worse we know how to run transit service um, to the extent that we're that the MBTA is not doing things that they should be doing uh, there are things that are known that we can do. All we really need to do, we don't have to uh, invest in rocket science, really. We just need to copy what other agencies are doing as best practices. So um, privatization in itself is, is, not, a, is not a solution. Um, it's often a promise that it will, will save money, but really it doesn't, you can't save money without either uh, skimping on people's salaries or, and benefits or uh, skimping on the level of service. And that's usually what happens with privatization. Um, can I, I okay, just jump into that real quickly? I think that um, looking specifically at the commuter rail, it's been privatized for many years, and the T changed, uh, you know, providers from you know MBCR to Keolis. Keolis bid much less than they should have, and then the snow hit the fan, and you know, and all these traction motors failed. But you cannot put the, all the failures of equipment on you know the back of the company that bid you know, you know, f f to provide the service. So it's really, I think, the issue comes down to accountability. And does the public agency that owns this issue on our behalf, is it properly managing, investing in the capital equipment, and does it have good oversight of that? So, you know, I think that for the T to actually, for there to be a public uh, solution or, you know, alternative to that, we would need to see what that costs. And that analysis hasn't really been done, not, not in many years. It's always been assumed that there would be a private operator, you know, going back, I don't know, if it's 10, 15 years or, or more, because before it was MBCR, it was Amtrak. So, you know, so, so I think that if you have the controls in place, then it's feasible. And I mean, you know, it's a unionized workforce with, you know, with Keolis, and it's just a lot of people would say that really comes down to how the top management from Keolis has been deficient. They underbid the contract and couldn't invest in what was needed, and the equipment that they were, you know, the hand they were dealt was atrocious. So it's not to fault, you know, privatization, but for it to work, it has to be in the public benefit. And I should say that the art, the regional transit authorities are actually required by law to contract out service and, and yeah, they do this as that's well. Right. Yep. Okay. I write, I would love to ride the T in transit much more than I do. I'm one of these people who lives in Boston, but I work outside of Boston. That is one of the worst situations ever. Um, I could take the commuter rail right downhill, but the, t the schedule's totally not oriented towards my work schedule. And then I'd have to walk two miles, part of, and I don't mind walking, but part of that route is not safe. I, I do think there has to be some push for subsidizing some of the fares, like families who live in Needham or whatever, they want to come in. They don't take the commuter rail, it's too expensive. You know, there's got to be weekend service. So I think a lot of the stuff has to be pushed. The other thing is the getting around Boston instead of just getting into Boston. You know, so I think these are things we have to really push on too. There's so much traffic is getting so unbearable. You think people in cars can go on that could I touch on the fare issue? I think that this is a great example of where the narrative needs to be changed. I'm looking at a great report that MassPerg produced on who pays for roads. There is this perception that motorists pay their own way. It's just not true. I mean, there's a subsidy for every mile of every driver, you know, uh, vehicle. 
And it's not, it is, I mean, Jeremy talked about how people who benefit from transit aren't just the ones who use it. And St. Louis had a great winning campaign investing in their transit system, beautiful tagline, transit. Some of us use it, all of us need it. And if you want the nurse who's taking care of your mom to be able to get to the hospital, then make sure that you've got a reliable transit system to go there. And yeah, the fare subsidy, I mean, I can get into that, but that's coming. That issue of, of how much people should pay. And there's you know, benchmarks we're going to, again, tell that story. Right. Over here. Okay. Yeah. Some of the tea writers, you know, our opinion on the privatization of some of those bus routes is they're doing the unprofitable ones and they want to get rid of the bus routes. You know, because, like, I grew up in the boonies. Before they deregulated the state buses, they had to make one stop in every small town. When they're deregulated, they stop it. And, like, when you're talking about we have concerns when you're talking about something like Uber Lyft, you often have to have the smartphone for those. And sometimes we're worried about like they have private transportation down the water. We're worried because privatization, they're looking for profit, not for people. And down the waterfront, the buses they have there, they just serve the companies, the private buses. Yeah, I mean, th this gets into the conversation of what is the purpose of public transit? And, you know, a lot of people who, who work on network design ask the, this question of, you know, what are you, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to, are you trying to maximize the ridership and get the most, you know, and run, you know, run the Route 1 and the Silver Line and the 66 and, and really focus on these, these core routes? Uh, or is, are you trying to provide a social service that, you know, provides mobility for people to get around the city? Is that, what, or is it a combination? And what's that goal? And I think a lot of times we focus so heavily, you know, when we talk about cost per rider, you know, what does this cost? This, you know, we focus so heavily on cost. I mean, even uh, our infrastructure projects, somebody puts out a, we find, we, we find out that a project costs, you know, $2 billion and somebody says, well, oh, that's too much money to be spending on, on transit or, you know, education or whatever it is. And say, what do you mean that's too much? Who, who, how, do you, how did you decide that? Where did, where did that come from? <laughs> And so this focus on the, the fact that, on, on the cost side and not the, the public benefit side, there's a role to play for in, in, in having services that, that may be what we call predictably low ridership routes. Um, so you have a couple of the routes in Newton and places like uh, Peabody, some of these places where the routes are going to be predictably low ridership, but uh, you know, they're important to certain people. And the, the question should, we should be asking is not, can we afford these, but uh, is there a way that we can do this better, that it that it can work better for the community, recognizing that we're going to have to spend some money on it, and, and that's okay because we support what it does. Okay, I have a Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was just um, struck by a couple of points that Josh, you made. One was you said, um, you know, there's a real willingness at the state level, let's say. And then you said the important thing is to change the narrative. And I think, you know, narrative at all levels, you know, uh, here at state, city, country, you know, about public transit. So what I want to know is what does this willingness, what does it mean in concrete terms? You know, it, right, right. because you said then we have to change the narrative with the staffers, with everybody. Right. So. Right. Well, yeah, let me. Um, try not to be too vague here because I think, because I apologize if I didn't, you know, make, wasn't concrete enough, but what the governor has done, whether he wanted to or not, is he opened the door to a conversation. 
Now the question is, how do we get him to go through that door to actually do articulate the vision and the concrete steps necessary to get there? And that's going to take support at, at all levels. You're going to need big company owners and small business owners and employees and you know, you know, public officials to really embrace the narrative of investment for the public benefit and for to leverage you know, private profit, which kind of fuels the economy. So, so I think that uh, you know, the governor, by uh, really making a commitment and owning the issues of the MBTA, particularly you know, when it comes to winter performance, has staked his own reputation on this. By appointing Secretary Pollack, who many of you or many of us have worked with and is trusted, and is looking at some you know incredibly dysfunctional issues and in, in, in how things are managed and you know so it but I think I, I hope I hope this is satisfactory to you. It is it's ultimately something we all own. We have to collectively persuade people who are influential to then get to very reluctant legislators when it talks about you know making investments and raising taxes and everything else to actually take the steps necessary to achieve the system that we ultimately want. And if it means we're gonna need an extra, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars of revenue or something like that for transportation, but here's how it's gonna be spent and here's where the accountability will be, then we need to make that case. And I think the window to do that is over the next, like, 18 months. So that, you know, like about a year from now, we're talking about a legislative solution. And in the between, there'll be like, you know, little bits and pieces of it. So it's, you know, we've got a work cut out. But, and, and we, and I know Jeremy and Kirstie and other people here will be talking about the things we will need to do. Letter writing meetings, there we go. Over here, Paul? Right, right here. I just had a quick question, and I, I'm sorry I don't know the answer to this, but you mentioned before that there were um, zoning changes that were allowed when there's um, building on luxury condos or condos or whatever, however you want to characterize that, based on density changes because of transit being available. Is there any direct relationship between the developer then donating some, or having to give money to the transit system specifically if that's the reason why there's a zoning change? I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. It's not really formalized. And, uh, you know, the BRA kind of let stuff happen. And you look at some of the, or just in the region, you look at the areas of the most intense development where we have tens of thousands of people or more you know, Seaport, Longwood Medical Area, Kendall Square, completely inadequate transportation. So it's almost as if, hey, let's build stuff. And then, oh, I guess, yeah, that Silver Line's not gonna do it. So, so um, no, that's not currently linked, and that's one of the things, there's something called the Value Capture Commission, which is like, no one knows what those three words mean, but, you know, um, and I think later, maybe there'll be some discussion about what that means. So, not currently, but the problem there is, you don't just want to make it so that developers pay for stuff because how's that going to help people in the neighborhoods? You know, that might help build a nice shiny station where there's a lot of money, but it's not going to help people where, like, where the workforce lives. So, and transit serves a lot of people, so you know it's very diverse. So it's you know if we like, should I pay for it? Should you pay for it? Or should we only should we charge the person who's adding to red to redline uh, ridership only yeah. when the thing gets the capacity? Like, how does this all work? And yeah very gray area but I I don't know I kind of support the idea if you're tax if you're using a lot of the resources then we should have a discussion at least and late night service obviously yes
Which I guess is social good, the public good, you know. For sure. Consetta? So this lady raised a question in my mind. She mentioned something that made me wonder. And it is of concern to me as well. I'm wondering if anyone in this whole transit debate has thought about the private shuttles and private vans. Because Massport just put on a shuttle to the airport from the Back Bay area, I know. And I'm wondering, do we need these parallel services? Or do we integrate these services as part of public transportation? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, why don't you ask the T to do these things? Because Longwood has a shuttle, Boston Medical has a shuttle, Massport just put on a shuttle. Are you eroding public transportation or are you enhancing public transportation? Should we integrate it and say, we have the T, let the T do the services? Mm -hmm. There's somebody at the at MIT who's actually who's working on this issue of, of private shuttles. So I'll give you see if I can get their info. Talk to me later. But um, these these shuttles basically have come about. You know, you're talking about Masco M2. You're talking about the all these these buses that are running over the seaport. These they basically came about because there were gaps in the transit system, and uh, you know, same Hubway fills a lot of that too. And and so when you look at these, you say, okay, well, there are needs here. Sometimes, sometimes a shuttle is is really just for employees. You know, Masco runs some shuttles to parking lots where their employees park, and you know, it's literally just for their employees. But um, you know, in there, there are many cases where these could be vital parts of the transit system. So you have the M2 route that's going a mass F from Boston to Cambridge, and there is a, a lack of of uh, rapid transit over there, or a limited stop service might be useful. Um, something that runs more than every 25 minutes, um, and so. Things like this are, yeah, they sh they, we should think about including these as part of the transit system. There's very political, weird funding things going on, but uh, nothing that, that really couldn't be worked out. So I think um, two things that, the, you know, I don't think the T has the capacity as it is now, and there's a great unwillingness to add, you know, payroll. <laughs> no, no surprise. The T is looking at ways of controlling labor costs. But the second largest transit system in the state is Masco. You know, they have more riders than any other RTA, you know. Uh, so, I, and, and, and you know, what are they? Oh, sorry. Right, medical area, medical, Longwood. academic, scientific, Longwood. Uh, yeah, the Longwood area shuttles. So Those are private? Yeah, yeah, those yeah. are pri pri private now. The blue buses, you ever see the blue buses going up and down Mass Ave? That's yeah. one of, that's their most popular route. Uh, the public can't take them with tickets. Right, but it's 325 to take them to, and some of them you can't take, and so it's it's not really it doesn't really work it's, as part it, of the system. Yeah, yeah but it, it, I'm it, sorry, it, Josh, I interrupted. No, it is you, you've diagnosed a very important problem. You know, I mean that that we have these. It is parallel system. It is something that people who have the connections, means, employment can get on, and we need a system that works for everybody, where no one should really say, "Well, I don't qualify for that." It is really a system of segregated transportation that is really undemocratic, and it's and it's inhibiting our ability, you know, opportunity for people. When you think, what's the goal? Revenue as well from the, from the public yeah, yeah, I, I I think so. One more question. But, but I feel like he's got something to add to this. So I'm right sorry. Here, go ahead. No, yeah. This was question. Oh, okay. But sorry, I didn't mean to. Else. So you're Paul. I'm oh, sorry. You're. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Could you guys speak to the state of like the actual budget and like what are the sources of revenue, how mm. much, what percentage is coming from people paying the fares, what's coming from federal or state, you know? Um, 
Yeah. I yeah. I mean, as for numbers, there's there's you know the the T fare box recovery ratio, the percentage of operating costs paid by fares is somewhere between twenty and fifty percent, depending on the mode. Right. Um, and I think I think the percentage of uh, of user costs for highways is somewhere around fifty percent. So so. Yeah. So thank you, Kirsty. Yeah. So absolutely. yeah, I mean, it's that is um, that's that's what I what I know about the funding picture. You know yeah, a lot more. It, it is in the come from. Where does the other, the other seven, 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 seven. Uh, uh, public funding? Mix. Right, yeah. generally public funding, mostly yeah. state, some some federal. Uh, yeah. One of the big things that's on the table now is the idea of contract assistance. Another word that's like not, you know, accessible, but it, it means how much should the state be helping to subsidize the operating budget of the MBTA? And part of that is needed in order to be paying people with operating funds, not borrowing, which is a ridiculous way to pay your employees. Um, and, and part of it is just, you know, cost escalation because the T has increasing, you know, costs over time, whether it's for labor, benefits, fuel, you know, uh, you know, other services that they provide. So, but most of the T's budget, I mean, a lot of it comes from you know, sales tax revenue and other sources. I think a big problem we have is that the state legislature as a whole including people who do not feel a duty or an obligation to serve their voters by supporting MBTA service, you know, um, are there. And then another part of it is the assessment in cities and towns. You know, I mean, in Natick, I know if I were to say we should pay more for the MBTA, people would rebel because they don't see it as being a benefit. We actually pay more and, uh, for the RTA service, which provides just a fraction of the benefit of the MBTA service. So there is a politically, you know, funding mechanism that's really fundamentally broken. And I hope that is something that the Fiscal Management Control Board, which hasn't been mentioned here, but is, I think, a good thing for the level of visibility. It's getting to all the T issues, uh, is going to be addressing in the coming year. Is there any place where there's a pie chart that says, you know, this money for the MBTA comes from this source, this part from the gas tax, this part from this? Is yeah. Yes, it's very... I know. I, I, yeah. we, yes. We've looked into trying to get these right. studies. You cannot make so hide a hair out of them. One of the reasons we organized this forum is we yeah. couldn't find these numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I think Louise knows where it is. Is that yeah. that's what we think? I mean, I've been to the financial control board meetings. Okay. And they have the charts up to show each route how much their revenue yes. does it. It's also advertisement, too. They want to get alcohol advertisement back because it's more money. Right. There's, there's also a chart that shows. The, what comes from the general fund and what comes from dedicated funds, yes. and that all gets, and then and then the assessments, and it gets very complicated very quickly. The I believe in our keeping on track report yep. in I the think spring, right. we did we did uh, uh, which was uh, T for Mass and Mass Perg and Conservation Law Foundation. We put some of that in there, so that and then we're going to be updating that in late winter or early spring, um, and also looking at the bigger picture now of of what's happened not only these past few years but what some of the promises and and hopes that the new administration has and working that in so we'll be doing that again but look at that look with that report reports online that should be helpful yeah. if, and if, you can call us about if, if you go to if you go to t4ma.org which is on these things yeah. on the menu there's a, like a resources a whole publications yeah. library with way more than you have time to read uh, but if there's something there that you're looking for, just email me, and I'll, you know, and I've got cards here, so I'll help people find it. Okay, great. We're we're, we're out of time on this panel, but Claude, you have a quick comment? Just to follow up, I mean, 
The report we're looking for, though, I'm looking for, is not the fine print, but the big picture, the yeah. political big picture. Right. Like, mm -hmm. what is the total need? Like we read in the paper, it's seven billion to fix the deferred maintenance. But what about the expansion need? What about the planning process? What about the whole thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what we have to project politically. Right. And we have to be able to support it and document it. But that's what we have to put in front of the, of the body politics. I am. I'm really glad you mentioned that. I, I know that we're probably running late, Go but ahead. but you know, Jeremy's talked a little bit about future needs and a growing system, and I don't think I did that in my upfront remarks, and really really haven't talked about. Where are we going to be 5, 10, 20 years from now? If we continue looking at what I call just the right side of the menu, oh, I can't afford that. I need something cheaper. Well, other areas are going to be eating our lunch, and people of need in other parts of the country, part of the world, will have access. And that's where tomorrow's workforce and companies will go, and we will be in decline. And that is what is all on the governor now. Because the cavalry is not coming in from the federal government. I was just going to say, we have to get on the governor, right? It's on the governor. It is on the governor. The people have to pressure the governor. Everybody, yeah, but not just, yeah, not, I mean, right, but I mean everybody. I mean CEOs and, and workers and students and, you know, parents and seniors and kids, but because the federal government's not coming to the rescue. We have a very dysfunctional Congress. I know you're shocked. You know, the House transportation bill is worse than the Senate bill. It's not going to do anything for us. There's no more earmarks, and as bad as earmarks were politically, um, it means that they're not going to be like any, you know, presence under the tree, regardless of what your religion is, <laughs> to uh, to you know uh, coming forward. So it is all on us, but with a vision for the future that really is, talks about the benefits and, and, and what we need to do together. Okay. Can I just say really quick that the, the <laughs> just one last thing. Yeah. With, with this issue of, of funding, um, you know, we, we often hear about the state of good repair, and the state of good repair is important, but as we saw with the, with the gas tax referendum, it, the, you're not going to get people to pay more, to, to agree to pay more for what is essentially the same service, mm -hmm. right? So this, we can't keep going around and saying, you know, we need $7 billion to fix because people say, ah, oh, well, you know, we're kind of jumping along, it's okay. But we need a plan to really improve the network and to, to redo the whole thing that's like a major investment. We need to put it all together and the state of good repair is part of that. But, you know, there, there will be uh, new services, there will be improved capacity, all these things that people can latch on to and connect to and people can support. And we need to make that case, I think. Amen. Okay, well, listen, I thank you very, very much to, to both of you. Um, uh, I, I'm actually going to use the prerogative of the chair just to, because we're going to start the next panel at 11 o'clock. We're going to take a five-minute break for coffee and there's juice over there and everything. Are we talking about, re are we talking about uh, fixing the infrastructure that's there and modernizing it, or is that just, is it just too old and do we need something built from scratch? Yes, both. I mean, good. <laughs> no, I mean it's it, you know there's there's parts of the system that that you know work well, um, and there's parts that don't. I mean, the I often think that the, the green line is is just such a, a disaster. I'm just looking for a non-swear word to describe it here, but I mean there, there's just. It's, it's such a disaster in the central subway. There's so many people, it's so crowded on the surface that I think that maybe we can just like, just make a, just put the, put a red line there. You know, just, just get rid of it and 
and then there's there's parts like you know the number one bus which is you know does this need to be something better than it is you know the transit in, in Roxbury and Dorchester is, is really inadequate but then there's other things where we can you know for the red line we can upgrade the signaling and make huge improvements so it really is it's a case-by-case -case basis okay so so you know the state is actually asking all of you this question what do we want in the years to come and I think it's, 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 you know, I talked about the false choice between maintenance and expansion. We have to repair what we have. Too many people rely on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it needs to be brought up to a state of good repair. You cannot take $24 billion in MBTA assets and say, well, we're not willing to spend $7 billion over the next 20 years to bring it up to its intended use. You have to do that because mm -hmm. that's not going away. There's no new technology that's going to solve that system-wide problem. But there are you know, innovative alternative solutions that will help add the capacity we need for growth. When we go to a million one to a million four day, daily riders in the coming years, or more, we hope, you know, that has to be achieved and we have to show the, the ways to do it. So, you know, resist false choices between those, those things. Um, but when I say the state's asking us, there is this process going on in the next week or two called Capital Conversations. Just look for it online or go to my website or any of the others. They want to know what you want to see in the years to come. Don't be shy. Don't hesitate to say that what you want to see in, in future <laughs> years and what, you know, don't worry about the cost because part of this is called Focus 40, mm -hmm. unconstrained budget for what the MBTA should have in the future. And I think that's a very important conversation to be having, really based on what we want and what, it speaks to our values. So. Great. Okay, well, thank you very much. Great. Let's take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back with our next panel.